0: Genesis 15, we're going to look at the entire chapter. So it begins here. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, that is Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, thus far, the reading of God's word. So as we continue along in Genesis, of course, we're just marching along through the text here. Um, One of the things I do like about Old Testament narrative is typically you could take larger chunks, so you can, um, instead of parsing it down into smaller sections like you might do in the New Testament here, you can take one chunk because chapter 15 really is one, one piece here. And we are, of course... Because of the way numbers work, fifteen comes after fourteen, and I know uh, you know you pay me lots and lots of money to tell you these highly technical things that fifteen comes after fourteen. Um, but in chapter fourteen, what we see there, if you remember from last time, was uh, the story of this great battle of uh, warring kings, uh, warring warlords. Uh, these four kings against five kings, and don't ask me to read the names again. I'm not going to read the names again. (laughs) The only one I remember by heart is Cato Laomer. But uh, you had this great warlord who had exercised control over the region of Canaan. Then after a period of years, there was a revolt. So this great warlord gathered his coalition and came down and asserted himself again in this area. And in the process poor Lot, because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, got captured along with all of this. So Abram hears news of this and he gathers his fighting force and it's only 318 men. Not quite sure how many men uh, Cato Leomer had with him, but it was probably way more than 318. That's all I can, I can pretty much say. I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty safe on making that assumption, that it was way more than 318 men. And, and, and I think the reason behind this, of course, is to show how the Lord gives victory to the faithful, how uh, Abram steps out in faith, and the Lord gives him the victory, because that's exactly uh, what we see when he is uh, met by this, uh, quote-unquote, mysterious figure, Melchizedek, He says, blessed be the God most high in verse 20, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So uh, Abram goes and he splits his army into two or three parts and they attack at night and they achieve a great victory. And he rescues Lot. And uh, as I said, you've got these two kings and they come after him. You kind of see a a, uh, contrast between them. You've got the king of Sodom and this Melchizedek, bless you, this Melchizedek who is uh, the king of Salem or Jerusalem in that area. And Sodom, the king of Sodom just says, give me my stuff and you can keep the, the spoils, and Abram's like, I, I don't want anything from your hand because I, I made an oath to the Lord that I would take nothing from anyone's hand I, you know they could say that they made me rich. But the king of Salem comes out and we see he brings bread and wine and he blesses Abram. And he says, blessed be Abram the, uh, by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And we see here that Abram gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of, of uh, everything here. And, and then we spent a lot of time <laughs> talking about Melchizedek last time, if you remember that. Uh, maybe uh, your eyes started to glaze as we're looking at all these passages about Melchizedek. But he's an important figure. Um, not because I say so, but because the New Testament says so, and because uh, this figure is made much of uh, by the author of Hebrews. And you see, uh, the only three places you see the, this person, Melchizedek, is here. You see him in Psalm 110, and you see him in the book of Hebrews, because the author of Hebrews is, in a sense, writing a sermon or preparing, you know, he's giving an exposition of Psalm 110. Uh, to show to his readers how Jesus is uh, uh, supreme, how Jesus is better than all these things, and how his priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. And he makes this comparison between um, Jesus and Melchizedek. Uh, In fact, the the name Melchizedek means, my king is righteous. And so we see here he is the king of righteousness and king of Salem, which is king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And again, you're like, I'm sure I don't think Mr. and Mrs. Melchizedek named their child this because they knew he was going to point to Jesus. But by God's providence, this guy's name was Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews picks up on this. King of peace, king of righteousness. Who could this be pointing to? Who would be bringing bread and wine? Who would be blessing Abram? Who would be praising God Most High? Who would be king and priest other than Jesus Christ? So, while you have this fairly normal story here, I don't think the people, as they're getting ready to go into the Promised Land, as Moses is relaying this and telling the story, that they would pick up that this was Jesus, that this would point to the seed of the woman. But this is, again, if you remember what we said this morning in the sermon, right? this is part of the mystery. This is part of these things in the Old Testament that perhaps your Old Testament reader might not necessarily pick up on, but point to Christ. Then you look back on it, and you're just like, wow, okay, was, that was being revealed all the way back then. This Melchizedek figure who kind of comes out of nowhere, in a way, uh, points to Christ. So uh, we talked about that. Uh, But that's where we left off uh, in chapter 14. Now, as we come to chapter 15, it picks up pretty much right after the events in chapter 14, because that's what you see there in chapter 15, verse 1. After these things. Well, what things? The things in chapter 14. So what we're going to see here is an interaction between the Lord and Abram as the Lord is going to Reassure Abram uh, again. <laughs> and he's finally he's going to make a covenant now. Now, he made promises already. He made promises in chapter 12. When he calls him out, and he says, I will, I will do this. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You know, so if you read through Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, 3, you get, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is the Lord promising to Abram. And Abram, you know, by faith, as the writer of Hebrews says, left his home and went to wherever uh, the Lord was showing him to go. So you're like, well, why does he need a, a covenant? Well, why, why, why do we need covenant? any kind of reassurance, (laughs) right? You know, because we doubt, because our faith uh, is weak, because we don't see the promises coming as fast as we want them to come. So the Lord is going to, and we'll uh, explore this as we look at it, but the Lord is going to reassure Abram, and he's going to do so by making a covenant. He's going to officially ratify the promises he made in chapter 12. He's going to ratify officially in a covenant. And then later on in chapter 17, because every covenant has something, some kind of sign that points to it. In chapter 17, we're going to see the sign of the covenant. So the promise, the actual covenant itself here in chapter 15, chapter 17, when we get there, Lord willing, um, if we go by one chapter so far, it'll be in a couple of sessions. We're going to see the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision is the sign of the covenant with Abram. So that's what we're gonna see here tonight. So the Lord secures the promises made to Abram by making a covenant with him. That's what we're gonna see here tonight. So as I think I may mention this, I couldn't I couldn't quite keep it to three points. I could have made it two points. But I've been, I made it four points. <laughs> and and really the way I see this shaping up here is Abram has two questions. And the Lord has two answers, (laughs) right? Abram has a question about descendants and he has a question about the land. And the Lord is going to respond by giving him a promise about descendants and a promise about the land. So that's what we're going to see as we look at this passage here. So first one through six, and I'm probably just going to spend the most time on this one because verse six is really a very important verse. We'll, we'll spend some time on the actual covenant itself. Um, but 1 through 6, I'm probably going to spend uh, more time. I've got more material on 1 through 6 here. But as we come to this again, um, you know, chapter 15 picks up where chapter 14 left off after these things. Then we see the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So we know from the author of Hebrews, right? He says in chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, that in times past the Lord spoke to the fathers of old in various forms, right? So we know that, that revelation comes in many ways. It comes through direct um, speaking of the Lord. You know, if you think about the Old Testament prophets, you know, the Lord says, it says, you know, the prophet received a word from the Lord and then the prophet would speak forth literally what the Lord gave him to say. Thus spake the Lord. Uh, Sometimes it comes in a dream. Think of Joseph. Think of Daniel. Sometimes it comes, as we see here, in a vision. Sometimes it comes just by providential work as um, through uh, research, through whatever, you know, Moses, uh, when he compiles uh, the Pentateuch. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of what you have in Genesis would have been direct revelation, but the, you know, from Exodus on, that would have been well. He was alive for most of that, so a lot of that's just recounting their journeys, you know, as as they go uh, from place to place. Um, so revelation comes in many ways, but here we see the word of the Lord coming to him in a vision. And this word here for vision, we only see four times in the Old Testament. So the Lord appears in some way. Uh, to Abram and the words that he comes out here and says first off is fear not fear not now oftentimes when you hear fear not you have to wonder why do you say (laughs) why are you saying fear not well what what would you think would be the reason why the Lord says fear not because he's afraid right (laughs) right you know think of all the times an angel appears to somebody and and you know whatever person it's like they're they're afraid right they see the angel like ah an angel and they kind of fall and the angel says no no get up and you know i'm not i'm not god don't worship me and fear not you know the angels often say that fear not think of you know particularly the christmas story right gabriel appears to mary fear not he, she, you know, he appears to Joseph. Fear not. Uh, so here, uh, the Lord comes in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. And I don't like the ESV translation here. I like the New King James. I just picked up my ESV with me, but I, I think it really should be, I am your exceedingly great reward. I am your exceeding. I mean, I think both can be are valid but I think the New King James is better when it says I am your exceedingly great reward. Now, think about how this ties back to chapter 14, right? Again, if you remember how that ended. What does the king of Sodom say when he when he comes up to Abram? He says, "Just give me back all the people. You can take the spoils for yourself." And Abram says to him, um, I have lived, This is verse 22 of chapter 14. I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. So, in other words, he refuses the reward. The bribe. I don't know. I don't know what the king of Sodom was offering him, Um, but he refuses to be enriched by this wicked king. He says, "I have sworn to the Lord. The Lord has provided for me." And you know, you can almost say here it's like, okay, uh, you—the Lord Himself is now saying, in a sense, because you refuse that, I am your reward. He says, "I am your shield. I am your reward." And I love this, this, this. Idea of the Lord uh, being our shield. Um, I'm going to look at a couple of Psalms because the Psalms are really good on this. Uh, the first one that comes to mind, or at least the first one I have in my notes, uh, Psalm three, Psalm three, verse three. And and this is one. This is an interesting Psalm because um, this is. The, the historical inscription here suggests, or says, doesn't suggest, it says quite plainly, that this was the psalm that David wrote, or at least was inspired by the time that he fled from Absalom. So if you know that story, there, there's, there's a good, feel-good feel story, a nice little warm family uh, story there, is uh, King David, who, uh, a great man, not the best father. Not the best dad in town. And um, he had this whole thing with uh, Absalom and his other sons. And um, anyway, Absalom uh, usurped the throne from David and kicked him out of town. So he's fleeing. So this psalm was inspired by these events. And it begins, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. So this great little passage as David uh, puts his trust in the Lord. It's like, There are many enemies around me, but you, O Lord, are my shield. You are, and it's just the word that means literally shield. It's something that protects me, right? That's what a shield is for. A shield is for protection. O Lord, you are the one who protects me, even though my foes are many and even though they're rising against me. You are my shield. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Psalm 18, verse 2. These, these are all going to say essentially the same thing. Um, this one's got an inscription that's almost as long as the psalm itself. <laughs> I, I, I exaggerate, but it's, it's a pretty long inscription. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So here, um, as... Now, this is actually in Scripture as well in 2 Samuel 22. So it's interesting that 2 Samuel 22 would actually be at the end of David's life. But if it's delivered him from the hand of Saul, you would think that would be sort of like at the end of 1 Samuel. But whatever the case may be, the, again, David in his life reflects on how the Lord had delivered him from the hand of Saul. Now, again, if you know the story of David and his dealings with Saul, Saul hunted him down right? many, many times. You know, before David left Saul's house, um, you know, David would come in and would sing to him and calm his soul. And then, and then Saul would hear that, that top 40 hit that was going on uh, in Jerusalem at that time, right? Uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And every time Saul heard that, he's like, ah! And he would try to throw a spear at David. And he would miss because the Lord was protecting him. So David eventually leaves, and then he chases him down. And a couple times Saul had cornered him. And, and you would think that he was about to die. But then the, you know, the Lord again provides for him. And here he writes again this psalm. I love you, O Lord. Verse 1. My strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Again, this idea—I mean, the reference there to shield—but I mean, think of all the things that David said: my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock. In case you hadn't heard it the first time I said it, my stronghold. You know, in case you didn't hear fortress. You know, my—he, all these things. The Lord is his protector. Right? The Lord is his protector. I think of Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a refuge. The righteous run into it and are safe. Psalm 119, verse 14. I mean, there's others, but I just, I was kind of skipping around a little bit here. That, well, that doesn't seem right. Uh. No, no, it's not 14. It's Maybe it's 114. Yep, there we go. <laughs> Who wrote these notes? <laughs> Psalm 119, Sorry. Psalm chapter 119, verse 114. And again, it's just, you are my hiding place and my shield, I hope, in your words. So this idea of shield is, you know, that he is protecting him. So when, when the Lord says here to Abram, I am your shield, he's like, I am the one in whom you can trust. I'm the one in whom you can take refuge. I'm the one who will protect you, who will watch over you. And then he says, I am your exceedingly great reward your wages, your reward. As I said, other translations like the ESV say, your reward shall be very great. Like I said, I don't think that's a horrible translation. Um, I was trying to look at it in in the original Hebrew, and I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to translate that. I, I, st- I, I still think this is the better. The, be- the better way. What's that? Well, it says, I, I have to go back and look, but it basically it says... Uh, You've got the, the word for I. They don't, they don't. The Hebrew oftentimes drops the verb, so you supply it. So I am is supplied, and it says, "I am your shield, your reward, exceedingly great." So they supply will be. You know, some some translations say, "Your re- your reward will be exceedingly great," or you could say, "I am your shield." I am your exceedingly great reward. So, you know, exegetically, you can do both. But taking that in that context of what the Bible is, that's the same thing that God said to the rabbinical priesthood. I Right. That's why I like the, the New King James translation in this one better. Um, yeah, so I like the idea of the Lord being our reward. Because really, if you think about it, I mean, it's kind of the same thing that Paul will say in Philippians 3, where he says, you know, I want to be found in Christ, right? You know, even though you get all these benefits from, from Christ, he says, I, I, I want to be found in him. I want to, I, you know, he is, the, the, he is the, 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 the pearl of great price. He is the one um, that I want to give my life for. You think about what Boaz says to Ruth in Ruth chapter 2, uh, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Again, this idea of the Lord is a shield and he is the reward uh, who will reward us in a sense. Um, again, just some more backup. You know, some other, you don't need to turn to these passages. I'll just, I'll just read them. But Psalm 16 Five uh, says the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup uh, so there this idea of the Lord being our reward Psalm 142 verse 5 as well assuming I wrote that reference down right Psalm 142 verse 5 I cry to you O Lord I said you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living that idea of portion is my inheritance so here the Lord comes to Abram after this great victory. And let's face it, you know, oftentimes after great victories, you often have great letdowns. Um, you know, you think of Elijah and others. Um, and the Lord comes to him. He says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, I am your protector, and I am your exceedingly great reward. And then the Abram here uh, expresses a little bit of doubt when he says in verses 2 and 3, but Abram said, O Lord God, so there you have you know, the covenant name with the, you know, the Adonai, so Lord Jehovah, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliazar, of Damascus. And then he says again, "Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir." Now, again, you could say, "Well, you know, come on, Abram, trust the Lord. What's wrong with you?" You know, as R. C. Sproul would say, "What's wrong with you, people? Uh, What's wrong with you, Abram? Trust the Lord." Well, I don't know exactly how old Abram is here. Is here? Uh, we do know that he is. 86 years old at the end of chapter 16 when Ishmael was born. He was 75 years old when he came into the land of Canaan. So it's somewhere between the time he came and 11 years later. Uh, he's had enough time to go into Egypt, come back, accumulate uh, a lot of uh, of, uh You know, livestock and wealth. um, Enough time for Lot to go to to Sodom and pitch his tent there, and then eventually end up living in the city. Uh, So it's probably some time. You know, there was twelve years in which uh, those kings controlled this area of the land. So some time has gone by, right? What was the threefold promise that the Lord gave to Abram back in chapter twelve? He said, "Well, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you offspring." And I'm going to give you blessing. I'm going to make your name great. That's the idea of offspring. I'm going to give you this land that I called you to. So he's he been in the, in the promised land for some time now. Yet he owns no part of it. And he has no children. No land. No offspring. He, he doesn't even own a blade of grass in the promised land yet. Right? And he's only going to own the, the graveyard, the little grave plot that he buys later to bury his wife Sarah in. And then Jacob, that'll get passed down to Isaac and Jacob, and they'll get buried there as well. So he has no part of the promised land. We keep learning as we go through this that the Amorites live there, the Canaanites live there, all the, all the ites were living in the land. So in other words, it's still kind of their land, so Abram has none of it. So he say, like, look, I have no offspring. I have no land. Well, he focuses on the offspring here first. I have no offspring. I've been here how long? You promised me to be a great nation. I've got zero kids. In order for me to be a great nation, I need to at least have one kid, and I've got zero kids. All I've got is this this servant in my household. This guy named Eliezer, who is who is a, 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 a servant in my household. He is my heir. You know, and there was some. Records that indicate that you can transfer um, the inheritance to a trusted servant. So you get this. Uh, Word of doubt. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, we should never doubt the Lord, okay? I'm just going to say that uncategorically. We should never doubt the Lord. But put it this way, I understand Abram's doubts. I understand Abram's doubts because I have those same doubts at times myself. We all have those same doubts at times ourselves. Where's the promise? Where's the promise? You made the promise, Lord. This is, you know, it's the age-old battle between our concept of time and God's concept of time, right? We want it now. We, you know, you know, we think, you know, the Lord promises us something, we want it now. We want it, you know, yesterday, right? And the Lord oftentimes makes us wait on these things. You know, It's not that his answer is no. His answer is wait. You need to trust me. Do you trust me is kind of what he's saying here. Do you trust me, Abram? Do you trust that I am your shield? Do you trust that I am your exceedingly great reward? Again, from a human perspective, Abram's complaint seems warranted. He left everything to come here, He left everything that he knew. He left his family. He left his homeland. It was essentially just him, his wife, his nephew, (laughs) and whatever servants that they accumulated in the uh, area of Haran and came down here. He left everything. Left everything to come. Interestingly enough, uh, just as a bit of irony, the name Eliezer means my God is my helper. What's that? Yeah. (laughs) Interestingly enough, just a bit of irony. Um, So this is Abram. And then the Lord speaks to him again. This is in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son or what will come from your loins shall be your heir. And then he brings him outside and says, Look toward the heaven And number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, "So shall your offspring be." And it's such a great statement there from the Lord. You know, again, notice how the Lord accommodates him. Uh, You know, again, the Lord could say, "What is it about I am your exceedingly great reward that you do not understand, Abram?" Right? That's kind of how I would respond if I were God. What is it about I am your shield? What is it about I am your reward that you do not understand? You ungrateful little pagan. <laughs> you know, I would say Jew. He's not a Jew yet. Um, you ungrateful little pagan. How can you treat me this way? How can you doubt me after everything I've done for you so far? That's not what the Lord says. He says, He says, this man will not be your heir. Let me show you what your what your descendants will be like. Look at the sky, and then think about this. I mean, even here in Sutton, you've got a little bit of light pollution. If you were to look in the sky, you know, uh, if you stand in the corner at the streetlight, you know, of course, maybe out on the farm, you haven't you don't have that problem, but uh, here, even in town, you, know, you get some of the streetlights. You know, you have to get to a part where there's no streetlights. You can look up. You know, imagine what it would have been like out there uh, without any air pollution and any of that. And he's like, look at the stars. Count them. Can you count them, Abram? Can you count these stars? So shall your descendants be. So shall your offspring be. If you remember back in 13, chapter 13, it's a, he, he says the same thing. Well, Similar. In verse 16 of chapter 13, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So if you could count the dust, your offspring can be counted. Here he says, now look at the stars. Look at the stars. Count them if you can. And we know that his descendants would be numerous. Deuteronomy 1, chapter 1, talks about this. sorry one chapter 10 uh, chapter 1 verse 10 let me say it right chapter 1 verse 10 the lord your god has multiplied you this is moses speaking to the israelites and behold you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven now okay there's obviously more than a couple of million stars in the heavens it's 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 a metaphor okay but the vast multitude that that uh, was about to enter into the promised land. Moses is like, "Look how vast you are. You are as if you are as the stars of heaven." And that's exactly what the Lord had told Abram way back in the day. And then in verse 6, you get this great statement after the Lord says this, "Look at the sky. Count the stars. That's what your descendants will be like. This man will not be your heir. The Lord condescends. The Lord accommodates the weakness of Abram and then says, These, you know, your, your your descendants will be numerous as the stars in the heaven. And then we, hear, we see here, and Abram believed the Lord. And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Abram believed. This is is the foundational statement in the Old Testament for saving faith. It is such a key statement that it is actually quoted four times in the New Testament. We're going to look at a couple of those passages in a moment. But here, you notice what he says. This is Abram believed. And that word there, um, uh, we get the word amen from it, right? You know, when you say amen, you're saying, yes, thus, let it be so. And the verb form is to trust, to believe, so you've got this idea of trusting. Uh, you know, and if you remember Heidelberg uh, Catechism twenty-one talks about what is true faith. True faith is not just a sure knowledge that whatever uh, that we believe, whatever the Lord has revealed to us, but also a hearty trust that we, you know, that it's not we just believe it to be true, but that it's true for us. That I have in, uh, internalized it. I have taken it for myself. I trust in it for me. I rest in it for my own salvation. I can believe a lot of things are true, but I may not necessarily put my faith in them, okay? Um, if I have a deathly fear of flying, you can tell me seven ways a Sunday that an airplane is safe, but if I have a deathly fear of flying, I am not going to trust my life to an airplane, okay? But to trust is to say, yes, Lord, I put my, my faith is in your hands, So the Lord, Abram believes him. He trusts him. And then it says the Lord accounted it to him. It's to reckon it to him. It's to impute it to him. It's to, the Lord then, because of this faith that Abram expresses, the Lord considers Abram to be righteous. Not because of anything Abram has done, but because Abram expresses a faith in the promises of God. He has no children yet, yet the Lord has told him, you will have Descendants as num- numerous as the stars in the sky, and Abram believes it, so the Lord then reckons him righteous. The word there just means righteousness. He reckons it. He counts it to him as, as righteous. And as I said, this is so important that it is quoted four times in the New Testament. So turn over to Romans 4, because a couple of times it's quoted there. So Romans chapter 4, verse um, 3, starting in verse 1. So he had, uh, this is in Paul here in the train of his thought, he had just now expressed how righteousness comes not from the law, even though the law testifies to it. It comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. And then he points to Abram as his test case. It's like, what shall we say was gained by Abram, or Abraham now, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abram, I keep saying Abram. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then drop down to verse Twenty-two. There in verse 22, again, he says, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, it does not come from works of the law. It does not come through anything we can do or merit. It comes, righteousness comes by faith. Abram or Abraham here believed and the Lord counts it to him as righteousness. Thus, we also who trust in Christ, the promise of Christ, that his death served as a propitiation for our sins, our belief and trust and resting in that is counted to us as righteousness. So he is showing how faith saved Abraham in the Old Testament because he was believing in the promises of God. Faith also saves us here in the New Testament as we look and trust and rest in the promises of God as they are Fulfilled and accomplished through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, And that's why in chapter 4, verse 11, Paul calls Abraham the father of all who believe. Chapter 4, verse 11, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Now the whole point about this, I don't want to get into the argument of Romans 4, but he's just saying, look, Abram believed first, it was counted to him as righteousness first, and then circumcision was given to him, because that's the argument he's making in Romans, is that you're not saved because you have circumcision, you're saved because you believe. So he's like, he's pointing out the order here. Abram believed first, then, and it's in, according to the Genesis narrative, it's many years afterward, he is given the, the sign of circumcision. But here we see that Abram is called, because of his faith, weak as though it is, which is interesting, right? Weak as Abram's faith was, Abram is still here called by Paul, the father of all who believed. Paul uh, quotes him again, and the other places are Galatians three verse six and James two verse twenty three. You know, we looked at Galatians uh, some time ago in Sunday school, but there in Galatians three verse six, it's just the same thing. You know, he's making the same argument. Romans and Galatians are very much related. Just as Abram believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, he quotes you know again that same verse because he's he's like, look, how do how are you? How are you being perfected? Are you perfected by the Spirit? Are you perfected by the flesh? It's like, look, what, what's, what's the, what, what was the case with Abraham? Was he perfected by the flesh? Did he Was he counted righteousness because of something he did? No, that's what Paul is saying. Look, he was counted righteousness because of his faith. So, going back to Genesis 15. I mean, we've said this before, and I'm going to repeat it again. Um, again, this book that I read, you know, that talks about the life of Abraham. I love the title, so I've been stealing the title uh, shamelessly. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's called "Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality," um, and I think it's such a great way to describe Abraham's life, right? Because Abram did not see the reality of any of the promises that God gave to him, right? Well. One descendant. <laughs> he did not see the 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 multitude of descendants. He saw he saw his son Isaac, he saw Jacob, his grandsons, Jacob, and Esau. Uh, yet we know even Jesus says, right, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. But you know he didn't own the promised land, uh, but he trusted him and he lived in this gap. Between the promises of God and the reality of those promises, as they would eventually be uh, fulfilled. It's hard to live in those in that gap. It's hard to live in our timing versus God's timing. It's hard to live when you have these promises laid on you and given to you, yet you don't see them fulfilled or don't see them fully, completely fulfilled. Um, it's why Paul says that's why we walk by by faith and not by sight, right? You know, what kind of promises do we have? Well, we have the promise of the coming, the return of Jesus, right? Joy to the world, <laughs> the, the, the Lord's return. Um, and what does Peter say in his letter? He says, well, it's been a long time. And that's back when Peter wrote. He says, where is the coming? Where is the return of the Lord? Where is his coming? You know, and the scoffers will scoff. And, and if they were scoffing back in Peter's day, they're scoffing even more now because it's been 2,000 years. Where is the promise of his return? We're living in a in a, in a sense in the gap between promise and reality. Now we have a lot more to hold on to because we know Christ came and he, he accomplished redemption and, and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but we too have to walk by faith and not by sight. It's not easy. And again, notice again how the Lord here does not get angry at Abram. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't berate him. He doesn't He doesn't make him feel awful for his weak faith. The Lord uh, accommodates, graciously accommodates the weak faith of Abram. You know, know, he says, I am your shield. I am your great reward. And Abram's like, where is everything? Where are are all these descendants you promised me? And the Lord takes him out. He's like, look at the stars. Look at the stars. I showed you the sand of the earth a while ago. Now look at the stars. And Abram trusts him, and the Lord is gracious. He accommodates Abram's weakness. All right, let's move on. So that was a question about descendants. I told you that would take the longest part of the night. Now you have a question about the land, verses 7 through 11. So the Lord continues. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram... I have to chuckle just a little bit, okay? Because we just saw, two verses later, Abram believed the Lord and he counted to him his righteousness. And then the Lord says, I brought you out of the Ur and brought you to this land to give it to you. And then Abram says, but how am I to know that I shall possess it? Okay. Weak faith, weak faith. And then the Lord says, Brit- what was that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly no perfect. That's that's the point I'm exactly trying to make here. And and then uh, so then the Lord says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them uh, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So again, what we're going to see here is that the Lord makes a promise. Abram doubts the word of the Lord, and then the Lord, again, is going to condescend, and he's going to accommodate the weak faith of Abram, this time by making a covenant. So we're going to see the covenant being made later, but all, this, all these things here about gathering the animals together, it's all in preparation for the covenant. Um, this is uh, well attested in many sources that um, if you're going to make a covenant, now covenant is a, an agreement between two parties, And in this case, the custom was you would take these animals, as you're going to see he's going to cut them in half, right? And then you lay the halves against, you know, you make like a little aisle. And the idea was you would make these agreements and then each party to the covenant would walk between the pieces, signifying that should I break my part in this covenant, let my life be like the lives of these animals that were cut. And the same thing, the other party would say, if I break my agreement to the covenant, let my life be forfeit as these animals were. So it's a, it, it's just a ritual that was being performed here. And the reason why the birds were not cut in half is probably because there's not a lot of bird there to cut in half, right? <laughs> so he just puts one bird here and one bird there. So you've got this here. Uh, after reiterating the seed promise, uh, Abram's response of faith, uh, the Lord then reiterates the land promise. And, I, and note this too, and in, in, it's interesting in verse 7 where he says here, I am the Lord your God who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans. What did the Lord say to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai? It's almost the exact same phraseology, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, right? Exodus 20, verse uh, 1 and 2 Exodus verse 2 uh, 20 verse 2 the Lord here and this is another common thing with uh, covenants in those days particularly uh, the type of covenant this, this sort of reflects which is uh, the covenant between one who is greater and one who is lesser God of course being the greater Abram being the lesser the one who is in the greater position announces what he has done. He, you know, before the covenant is made, he's, he announces his mighty deeds. And what are the mighty deeds? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of your homeland. I brought you to this land that I am now going to give to you. Right? That's the point here. I am the Lord your God, and I'm giving you this land to possess. Why? Because it's my land, because I own everything, and I'm giving it to you. It's a land grant. It's a gracious land-grant promise that the Lord makes with Abram here. And then again, Abram expresses doubt. Now, this is not the first time that the Lord has promised the land to him. It's not the second time that the Lord has promised land to him. It is the third time the Lord has promised land to him. In chapter 12, verse 7, he promises the land. I will give this to you and your descendants after you. Chapter 13, verse 15 He makes the same promise. I will give you this land and to your descendants after you. And now again, here in chapter 15, verse 7, I will give you this land to possess. And then Abram's doubt. Again, consider Abram's situation. He's he's a sojourner. He's an exile in his own promised land. He's been moving around from place to place as a nomad in his own land that has been promised to him. So, in a sense... You, know, you can kind of sympathize a little bit with Abram, but again, you know, he just made this great statement of faith earlier, and he begins to doubt again. So then the Lord condescends. You've know, you got this ritual here with the, the animals. So you have the question about descendants, the question about the land, and now uh, we're going to see here the answer about descendants in verses 12 through 16. So as the sun was going down, uh, so there was apparently a little bit of time elapsed between the cutting apart of the animals and what is now going to be the actual ratification of this covenant. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Very important here. We're not going to skip over that. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But Abram was put to sleep, and it says, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him, then the Lord said to Abram, so this is, you know, presumably in a dream, since he is asleep, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what you see here in verses 13 and 14, right, so earlier Abram says, I have no descendants. And then God says, no, you're going to have descendants as great as the stars in the sky, but I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to your descendants. That's what you see in verses 13 and 14. Your descendants will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. What land is that? Egypt, Egypt right? He's, he's talking about the Exodus here. He is describing the captivity and the Exodus, right? Because by the end of the book of Genesis, where are Abram's descendants going to be? Well, they moved to Egypt, right? 70 people moved down to Egypt. And then by the time you turn the page from X, uh, Genesis chapter 50 to Exodus uh, chapter 1, uh, Many years have gone by, many generations have gone by, and now those 70 people have multiplied to a great multitude of 2 million-plus people uh, residing in Egypt. So they're going to be in a land that is not their own. They're going to be afflicted. Were the were the Israelites afflicted? Yeah, you betcha they were afflicted. Uh, they will be servants. And this idea of 400 years is, is how long... Yeah. Now there's some debate over the the whether that's entirely the time that they were subjugated, or it, that was the time that they lived in Egypt, including their subjugation. There's there's some uh, debate over that, and I didn't really go into it too too uh, deep here. But he's just saying here, look, this is what's going to happen to you, and. And then he says they're going to come out. They're going to come out with great possessions after these 400 years. I will bring judgment on that nation. So he's talking about all the plagues that he's going to bring on Egypt for their judgment. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Um, If you look at Exodus chapter 12, that's what you see there uh, in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 33. so this is after all the 12 pla- or sorry 10 plagues I just added 2 plagues <laughs> see if it were me I would have given them 12 plagues one for each tribe of Israel um, joking anyway chapter 12 after the 10 plagues here chapter 12 verse 33 the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said we shall all be dead yeah. so the people took their dough before it was leavened their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel uh, had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So the people were delivered, right? The Lord brought judgment on Egypt and they were delivered. They, were, they came out with great possessions to the point where the text says it is as if they plundered the Egyptians. And then it says that the time that they were in Egypt was 430 years. Well, that's what the Lord said here, right? Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment. And then he says, as for yourself, you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. So you're going to have a long life, Abram. You're not going to see this affliction necessarily, but this is going to happen to your your descendants And note that after you're dead, in the fourth generation, after you're dead, then they will come back. And notice, interestingly enough, at the end of verse 16, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The idea of the Exodus, in a sense, among other things, not only to show the Lord's power and salvation, but is also uh, a time of patience offered to the Amorites. Now, the Amorites is just an expression that... talks about all the people in the land. Um, but he's like, look, their, their iniquity is not yet complete. The Lord is gracious, right? Even this is a, a gracious uh, extension, if you will, of, of patience in order to bring judgment on them. Because the idea of the Israelites where they are now, because remember, Moses is writing this uh, as they are about to enter into the promised land, so you know, hundreds of years later, um, Israel is the sword of God's judgment on the inhabitants of the land. The iniquity of the Amorites is finally complete when they are, you know, during the conquest of Joshua. But here, it is not yet complete. Right in his passages I've referred to before, Exodus thirty-four, the Lord is. Gracious, slow to anger, bounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. But he is not, he will not forget the iniquity of the wicked. So here you have this mention of patience and grace. The Amorites, their sin is not yet complete. Um, and it's also good to note that judgment comes when God is ready to bring it. Right? It comes not a moment, you know, just as you know, if you're a fan of the, the Lord of the Rings movies, you know, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Right, God's judgment is never early. It is never late. God's judgment comes precisely when he means it to come. So the Amorites' iniquity is not yet complete. It will come when, uh, in the fourth generation after Abram is buried. And then God will bring judgment on the people. And then finally, so you got an answer. You had a question about the descendants. You got the answer for the descendants. You had a question about the land in verses 7 through 11. Now you're going to get the answer about the land in verses 17 through 21. So in verse 12, as the sun was going down, he fell into a deep sleep. Now in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Termites, the, Termites, the Stalactites, the Slagmites, the <laughs> all the ites. Okay, all of this land. So, the Lord answers Abram's question about the land by stating the promise again. This time he gives you the boundaries of the land. Now there's debate in the commentaries what is meant by the river of Egypt. I tried to, you know, you hear that and you think, okay, that's the Nile. But we know that that's not the, the the promise I never extended up to the Nile. So some say that there's some wadi or some you know dried riverbed somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula that serves as that boundary uh, there. That could be because at that time Egypt would have had some kind of hegemonic control over the peninsula and even into the into the land of Canaan as well. So we're not quite sure exactly what is meant there, but we know what the, what is meant by the River Euphrates. Uh, that is a well-known landmark. Uh, so he's just basically giving you the north and south boundaries here of the land. And in case you're wondering, well, it's the land where all of these Canaanites are residing, the Kenites and the kenizzites and the so on and so forth. And then we see here, so he makes this promise. Look, you asked me about the land. How am I going to know that you will give me this land? I will let you know, Abram, I'm going to covenant with you. I'm going to make a covenant. Literally, the phrase there is cut a covenant, right? The, the word for cut, it's kind of, it's karate. I, 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 my little mnemonic for that is karate, because you think of chop, right? You know, k- karate. <laughs> it's a karate chop. He's gonna, he's gonna cut a covenant. Uh, and it does mean to cut, right? And it's the, um, you think about you know, circumcision as a cutting process. Uh, so metaphorically, it means to make a covenant, but you would cut a covenant oftentimes, because think about it. What did, he, what did Abram do with the animals? Well, he cut them in half, right, in order to make this covenant. So, But here's the awesome part about this. So not only does the Lord promise the land to him, not only does the Lord condescend and uh, accommodate uh, Abram's weak faith by making a covenant with him, but he makes the covenant alone, this is a unilateral covenant. This is, even though he's making a covenant with Abram, Abram has no, no, uh, no stipulations here, in a sense, uh, that he has to accomplish. The Lord is putting it all on his own shoulders, saying, I will make sure that you will get this land, and I will take on all of the punishment if you do not get this land. So it's a unilateral covenant. As we see here, the Lord, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, he walks between the pieces. And don't miss that idea of the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. How did the Lord appear to the Israelites in the wilderness journey, right? As a cloud, as a pillar of cloud, as a pillar of fire. Here the Lord is giving, you know, in a sense, a preview of these uh, theophanic uh, uh, images here of the, the, the smoke and the fire. He makes a unilateral covenant. He walks between the the carcasses. The Lord is taking upon himself all of the stipulations of the covenant, and he takes upon himself all of the punishment should he fail to keep up his end of the bargain, which, of course, he is the Lord. He's not going to fail to keep up his end of the bargain. And again, here what we see is a formal... I meant to make copies of that covenant sheet, But what you have here is is this called the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the formal ratification of it, right? You have, as I said, the Lord promises these things to Abraham in chapter 12. Here is now the Lord covenanting to fulfill those promises. And then later on, we're going to see he's going to give Abraham a sign that is a, a memorial of this covenant. Well, that's in chapter 17. We'll look at that when we get there. But this is the Abrahamic covenant. And as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness, the the Lord here now assures Abram's faith by making a covenant with him uh, and thus guaranteeing the promises. So as we bring this to a close here, this is, again, this is the God we worship, the God who accommodates our weakness, though not excusing it, the God who makes covenant with us, even when our, weak is, our faith is weak. The God who makes promises and then takes it upon himself to fulfill these promises. This is the one we worship. He is going to secure the promises he made way back in chapter 12. And, you know, again, it would be easy to find fault with abram's weak faith but again he's like us as we saw and as byron mentioned earlier he's he's a picture of us right abram's you know he's just a stand-in for all of us who who have weak faith you know and 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 the lord accommodates him he walks by sight like we do not by faith far too often that doesn't mean that we shouldn't exercise more faith. We should trust the promises of God. We should not doubt, uh, and that's why you know we have the scriptures. You know, the scriptures remind us of the promises of God. That's why we come to worship every Sunday to be reminded weekly of the promises of God, so we are uh, strengthened in our faith. Right, uh, as, as you know, Isaiah says, "Our faith will mount up on wings like eagles, and we will run and not grow faint." We will walk and not grow weary, the Lord accommodates us. And again, here, the Abrahamic covenant, um, it's, again, the first formal covenant that inaugurates what we're calling the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace was, again, promised in Genesis 3.15, right? After the covenant of works was broken by Adam, Uh, the Lord made a covenant with Adam in the garden, says, if you obey me, If you do not eat of this tree, you will gain eternal life. If you eat of the tree of which I told you not to eat, you will surely die on that day. And it's exactly what happened. Adam failed, right? Even though Eve was the one who failed first, Adam should have been there to watch over her. and It was Adam's responsibility. And then he did die, right? That's what Genesis 5 is all about. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Yet in that curse, there's a promise The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, right? And uh, the serpent will bruise his heel. There, the Lord is promising that one will come who will do what Adam should have done by kicking out the serpent, by destroying the serpent. He's going to come. So where Adam failed in the covenant of works, this seed of the woman, you know, Jesus, right? I'm not spoiling anything here. It's Jesus. He will fulfill that, and that's the that's the promise, if you will, of the covenant of grace. Well, it's officially inaugurated here with the Abrahamic covenant. It's promised in uh, chapter twelve. So chapter three, verse fifteen flows into chapter twelve, where now uh, the Lord is working through one man and his family, and then uh, He makes this official covenant here in chapter 15. So what was promised in chapter 12 is ratified in chapter 15 will be fulfilled in Christ, right? That's the whole point of what Paul says in Galatians 3 when he says um, in chapter 3 verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, "In you shall all the nations be blessed." So the Abrahamic covenant, in a sense, those promises in Genesis 12 is a gospel call because that's what the Lord did. He promises the gospel there. So, and then the good news for us is that the new covenant, which Christ inaugurates, which Christ ratifies in his own flesh and blood, which everything in the old covenant points to the new covenant, that's also a unilateral covenant. Right, if you look at the passages that talk about the new covenant, particularly Jeremiah thirty-one, which is quoted in Hebrews eight, the Lord says, "I will clean them, right? I will sprinkle them clean. I will put them in them a new heart, and they, I will cause them to walk in my statutes." Right? Again, it's it's almost like Genesis twelve. I will, I will, I will. The Lord promises to do that. No more shall anyone uh, say to his neighbor and to his relative, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the from the greatest to the least, because I will write my law on their hearts. That covenant which Christ takes upon himself is, in a sense Christ stepping into the covenant of works and taking that curse upon himself. right Christ, Just as God walked through the animal parts here in Genesis 15, Christ took the covenant punishment for us that Adam uh, deserved, that we all deserve, right? That when Christ died on the cross, that was the wrath of God being poured out for us breaking, in a sense, the covenant of works in Adam. That's why Paul makes that connection in Romans 5. As in Adam, all die. As in Christ, shall all be made alive. Right? The, the, the sin of one man plunged the whole world into sin and unrighteousness. But the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, brings righteousness to all who believe. So we see here in this covenant that God makes with Abram a, a pointer, if you will, to uh, the covenant that Jesus ratifies in his own flesh and blood.